Welcome to this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Meg Rivers, the managing editor of the Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine and your podcast host. The Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, I speak with Tori Cope, a partner for the Food, Drug, and Medical Device Practice within Sidley Austin, LLP. And we talk quite a lot about a lot of different subjects, but specifically we do talk about drug approvals and launches from a legal perspective. So I hope you enjoy the episode, but before we get into it, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor and then we'll be right back with the interview. Hello, this is David Zaritsky from the Agency Network at MJH Life Sciences, and I'm here to tell you about the only award show judged entirely by healthcare professionals and patients, and it's back. We're happy to announce that the Pharmaceutical Executive Apex Awards are accepting entries until May 31st, and just as a reminder, these are incredibly significant because they are judged by your target audience. They're brought to you by Pharmaceutical Executive and co-sponsored by the Agency Network at MGH Life Sciences. And I've got to make mention, it's hosted by yours truly. Yes, I am back as well. Well, we can't wait to announce your name at this very important award show, but you've got to make sure to submit your entry today at farmexec.com slash apex awards. We'll see you soon. Tori, thank you so very much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm going to jump right into the questions. My first one for you is, or rather my first statement is, you work as a life sciences regulatory lawyer at Sidley Austin. Could you tell me more about your specialties and your work there? What brought you into the space or perhaps into life sciences specifically? And what has your journey been like? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So in general, I help life sciences companies with FDA regulatory issues that really arise in a range of contexts that can be, you know, just direct interactions with the agency or even just kind of trying to figure out what the rules of the road are and the best strategy for engaging with the agency might be. But it can also be in the enforcement context if there's an issue with FDA or some other government entity. And can also just be in litigation contexts, um, including civil litigation, product liability, things like that. And really importantly, especially more and more over time, is transactions. So, you know, FDA issues kind of come up in all of those different contexts, all of those different ways. And I kind of help clients navigate those issues in all of those contexts. In terms of kind of what I find really interesting about the work and the industry. It's really just a fascinating combination for me of the science. You know, the technology is really incredible, especially these days where we're talking about really complex AI and machine learning algorithms for digital health. We also have cell and gene therapy and just generally are really tackling a lot of really challenging therapeutic areas where we haven't been able to find, you know, treatments or cures to date. So I find that piece really, really fascinating. And then layered on top of that, you have this really complex legal and regulatory and kind of policy piece of it too. And so, you know, we're always trying to kind of figure out, okay, this is the technology, this is the science that we're really trying to push forward. 
how do we do that in this complex regulatory and legal environment? And it really is a puzzle and kind of trying to figure out where all the pieces fit and how to best, you know, position the, the technology and move it forward in light of the, the complex legal considerations. So I find that really fascinating. And I'm, you know, really fortunate to be at a firm that has teams kind of across the globe that are thinking about those issues. So not just in the US, but also in the EU and Asia, and then kind of really trying to piece it all together. Like, what does it look like in terms of a global strategy? How can you do that? Not just in the US, but across the globe. So that's what I find endlessly kind of fascinating uh, about the practice and kind of continue to find interesting. It was really great. I appreciate it. I have a question based on what you had said. You talked about like working with cell and gene therapy and AI, and this is for my own personal curiosity. Are there specific regulatory challenges that you've encountered that are related to the biopharma space that, I don't know, maybe you have tips or just maybe even trends that you're seeing within biopharma? To some extent, the questions are very, you know, they're always unique to the technology and the product category. But in general, I think the challenge is always that you're meeting FDA where they are and with the knowledge that they have. And, you know, usually the sponsor company is the expert in those issues and they've thought about them for years and years and years and they've really worked through a lot of complex issues. And then when they start to interact with the regulators, right, they're still kind of grappling with some of those issues. So I think there can be a tendency to kind of be a little bit further ahead than where the agency is. And there's just a little bit of a disconnect in the dialogue there, right? So it's really a matter of kind of, you know, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, who's asking these questions, rightly so, for the first time, and is maybe having questions or dealing with issues that you've kind of already progressed past, right? So I think it's it's really kind of level setting and matching and bringing the agency along with you and to kind of help understand how you've reached the position that you've reached and why you think you have the right answer in terms of safety and efficacy and how development should proceed. And, you know, it, it tends to arise as a challenge, right? Because you're proposing a particular pathway, FDA is proposing something different, it can feel like a dispute. And in some ways it is, but in another way, it's just an opportunity to kind of bring them along to where you are. It sounds like there's a need for having like layman's terms, things like, because if you're an expert in, for example, cell and gene therapy, I imagine there's a zillion acronyms that those scientists really know about as compared to maybe what the FDA knows about. Anyways, my next question for you is, what are some of your biggest tips for drug approvals from a legal perspective? It really does kind of start with really listening to what FDA is telling you. It doesn't mean that you have to agree that their position is right, but you at least have to start by really understanding what they're saying. Um, And sometimes that's just a matter of, you know, reading the words on the page in terms of like written correspondence or written feedback that you're getting. But sometimes, and actually often, it's digging a lot deeper than that because they're saying whatever they're saying. And that's in the context of a whole history that they've had with the product category. And maybe it's, you know, interactions they're having with other manufacturers. And maybe it's borrowing from some other guidance documents that they've issued, some of which may be specific to the therapeutic area, some of which may be just very general. So there's a lot kind of packed in there. And it takes a lot, you know, you really have to think through, okay, what are they telling me? What are they saying? 
And how do I take that legitimately and help bring it forward to where I am and what my position is? So I think that can be a challenge. And to your point, I think it can be easy to look at the acronyms, get into the scientific and technological terminology and kind of assume you're on the same page when really you might not be because some of these terms, you know, people may be using them slightly differently or just to your point, you know, it kind of gets in the way of just having a very basic common sense dialogue, which is what you need to have, right? So kind of getting out of the terminology and really making sure you're aligned on what they mean and what you mean and making sure that you're very clearly articulating what you mean. And to that point, I think my biggest tip is to just really focus on your written submissions to the agency because you know we have meetings and, and those are opportunities for face-to-face contact that is more limited in today's regulatory environment for a bunch of reasons. But at the end of the day, you have the folks on the agency side are pouring over your written submissions. And so they really have to be very well drafted. They have to make your key points, make them very clearly, make them upfront, have really clear, strong support for them, and really guide the FDA folks through your analysis and help them see why your position is the right one. Because otherwise, you know, they they get it and then they're just asking a lot of questions. They need to do a lot of work on their end to try to figure out what A, what you're saying, and B, why it's right. You want to just make that really easy. You want to make that really clear. So those are my two biggest tips. Really make sure you understand what they're saying and then address it really well through your written submissions. You had talked about, obviously, the written submissions, making sure it's really clear. And I'm curious, for your experience, when do you come into the process for regulatory? Are you working with the companies as they're writing these things up? Or do you come in not quite as proactively when there's issues and then help out? Or is it a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both, I would say. And it's kind of evolving now. I would say, historically, kind of the conventional wisdom is that the lawyers don't surface in the interactions because that tends to kind of escalate things, right? On the agency side, that gets their guard up and it makes them a little more cautious about moving forward. So historically, you know, lawyers have, have at least been be kind of behind the scenes. And I think historically have probably even be less involved in that and typically not getting involved unless and until a real dispute arises. And then you're starting to talk about maybe an internal appeal. But I think, you know, t- to my earlier points, you know, I think it's increasingly important to have really well drafted submissions. And lawyers are really good at that, I, you know, I, I think. And so I think that's where lawyers can add a lot of value in just helping pressure test, you know, here's what FDA is saying, here's what we're saying, and someone who can really look at the written record and say, okay, you know, actually, I see this additional issue in the FDA side of things that we need to address. And then on our side of things, hey, I really think we could, you know, make our main point much clearer and stronger up front. So I I think that's where lawyers can add a lot of value. And it doesn't have to be really time consuming or time intensive either, right? It can be in the early drafting stages. Here's our outline for how we think we need to approach this. And the lawyers can look at that and say, actually, I would move this point up. I would move that point down. I would make sure you're really clear about these three things. And oh, by the way, make sure you're addressing this thing, right? So this issue. So that 
you know, if that's done early, it's much easier to kind of have that input baked into the process than after the fact, or maybe, you know, a bunch of submissions have already gone in and, and now we're really kind of mired in a lot of miscommunication between both the agency and the company when that could have been resolved through some kind of early differences in organization and presentation. I feel across all niches in this industry from the folks I've been very fortunate to speak to, there's so much talk about proactively versus reactively. And I feel like that's what I'm hearing from you too. Like guys, let's consider being proactive rather than reactive. So that's really interesting to me. The next thing I want to talk to you about is we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. and then we're going to talk a little bit about global stuff. So what are the current regulatory challenges in the industry that the U.S. is specifically facing? Yeah. And to be fair, I think, you know, these are somewhat global challenges, but as a U.S. lawyer, this is certainly, you know, what what I see kind of very acutely in the U.S. environment right now. And really the way I see it is there's just two opposing forces that are pushing on each other really, really hard and kind of leading to more disputes. And on the one hand, as I mentioned, the science has become harder, right? We are tackling therapeutic areas that we have never been able to get successful treatments for or, or, or fairly limited treatments for. And that's for a lot of reasons. They're very complex mechanisms of disease. They can be small patient populations. It can take a really long time to measure the outcome or the effect of the treatment. And so that means that the trials are generally difficult to do, they're expensive to do, they're time consuming to do. And the science is just, there's a lot of room still for judgment and debate and honest, open discussion about what is the right answer. And so that in and of itself is a recipe for more disputes, right? You, you have more judgment, more difficult issues, you're going to have more disagreements about the right way to resolve those. And then on the other side, you've got, you know, everybody is still just recovering from COVID. And particularly on the FDA side, right, that has meant a lot less face-to-face communications, right? Because we weren't all meeting, we weren't all getting in rooms together. And in some way, you know, those kinds of discussions sometimes are necessary to break the logjam and really make sure everybody's hearing each other. So that's happening less. The agency has been really strained on resources and rightly so, right? They've been really focused on COVID, but that has had some lingering and lasting effects, right? So less face-to-face communication, more demand on FDA resources. So again, that is also contributing to more disputes. So that's, that's I think, what we're seeing, right, is, is more disputes. They're progressing further. They're going further up the internal appeal routes. And they're even ripening more and more into litigation because companies are kind of reaching the point where they think that, you know, the only way to kind of break the logjam is to go to court. And at the same time, courts are also kind of more receptive to some of those arguments. So that's really, you know, I think in a nutshell, kind of what, what's going on. You've got these two really competing things, and they're both driving to a more contentious situation for drug development. You had talked about like a log backup, if I'm saying that correctly. And I know this is a spontaneous question, but out of curiosity, you know, if companies are looking at these timelines and saying, hello, this is backed up, we really need to get things moving ahead. What is the typical timeline then, or what is a hopeful timeline? It's very hard to overgeneralize like this, but do you have one for, say, I don't know, a very complex biopharma, large molecule drug as compared to a smaller molecule? What is the desired timeline, if any? I think it is a hard question to answer in the abstract 
you know, one thing that's been really helpful through the User Fee Act legislation is a lot more timelines that do attach kind of deadlines for FDA to resolve certain things. So I think sometimes it's a matter of figuring out if there is an existing kind of deadline or existing framework that imposes a deadline and, you know, figuring out, okay, is that the framework we want to pursue, you know, whether it's trying to get a type A meeting versus a type C meeting, because, you know, it's a, it's just a classification system that FDA has, but type A meetings get granted faster. FDA gives feedback faster than, than type C meetings, for example. So can you get into that pathway versus another pathway? But again, it's kind of situation by situation, but that is definitely very much part of the strategy, if you will, is to try to figure out what frameworks might apply and which one might be the best way for you to proceed. Fantastic. Thank you for letting me uh, throw that one into the <laughs> ring. <laughs> sure. My next question for you is, there seems to be an increasing shift away from a one-size-fits-all approach to marketing and global launches. So what factors have been fueling that? So I think generally the U.S. is still the main draw for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of access to capital, even though that's more challenged these days. But generally, you know, a lot of access to capital, big patient populations, good reimbursed pricing and reimbursement structure, all of that kind of thing. But still, there are situations, I would say, where companies might look elsewhere. Some of that is where the challenges in the U.S. are particularly significant. So in some cases, companies may have a specific safety issue or efficacy issue that FDA is particularly concerned about, but that other regulators might have a different view on. So we've seen that in some cases where FDA might be asking for a significant more amount of toxicology data before you can get into the clinic, or they might be demanding a particular efficacy endpoint that's going to take a really big, long, expensive trial. And regulators elsewhere are perfectly happy to let the product get into the clinic or, you know, do a smaller trial. So there you might be thinking, okay, we're kind of at a dead end or at least at a very expensive process under the FDA advice, but we've got an opportunity elsewhere. Sometimes it's more about the draw that may exist in the other markets. So that can be about, you know, market share or just the, the ability of a market to support a new treatment in a given area. So for example, in, in China, where they may have fewer oncology options, you know, it may be easier to develop a new and introduce a new, a new oncology product than it may be in the US. So that's just kind of looking at the market and, and to some extent that interplays with, with the regulatory environment. And also, you know, the Chinese government has done a lot to kind of try to create incentives for development there. So there's increased patent term extension and other market exclusivity incentives that, that they have to kind of try to encourage companies to develop products first in China. And then in the UK, just as an example, they've made a, a big effort to kind of coordinate their approval and pricing and reimbursement processes all into one to make that more streamlined and to make the UK a more attractive approach. So again, it's kind of case by case. It's going to depend on what your interactions with the regulators are and then what how all of these other factors interplay. But I would say definitely it's much more of a product by product, situation by situation analysis than just assuming that we'll go first in the US and then we'll worry about the rest of the world later. The next question I have for you is what tips do you have for companies navigating the regulatory landscape within the U.S.? First of all, just don't assume that you're best off 
kind of slugging it through in the U.S. market or the U.S. process first. I think in many cases, that is where it makes sense to be starting or at least to initiate engagement with the regulatory authorities, but that may not always be the case. And as you start to get feedback, it may be that you want to think about engaging somewhere else first or kind of focusing your efforts somewhere else first. And then second, I think that it's really about realizing that the challenges in drug development are greater than they've ever been before. And I think it's not just quantity, uh, it's quality. I think that there is now a need to engage in a slightly different way. It's always required a lot of time and care and attention, but more than ever, right? You have to really make sure that you're understanding where FDA is coming from to the best that you can from the feedback they're giving you and really make it very clear and very straightforward what you're advocating for and what you think the approach should be and why. I think, you know, in the past, as I've said, you you used to be able to rely a lot more on face-to-face communications and meetings to kind of reach that alignment. That is much rarer. So you have to really have your own point of view needs to be much stronger than it's ever needed to be. And it needs to be communicated more clearly than ever before. So I think it's really realizing that. Based on what you had just said, you had mentioned challenges within drug development. And I'm going to just give an example and I'll explain what I mean in a second. But editors, a lot of times will joke around that editorial is very different today than it used to be. In the olden days, you got to write and do stories exclusively. Now you have people like me who will interview people on podcasts, you know, I'll write articles, I'll do videos. And so there's a lot more expected of an individual. And I'm kind of, it sounds like it might be the same for drug development too. You can't just be a fabulous scientist with a really fabulous product. It sounds like you also need to be really great with communication, making it concise and clear, having a regulatory background or expectation or educating yourself in that space. Am I understanding correctly? I think that's absolutely right. Well said. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So my next question for you is, are there specific instances where you'd recommend a company launch a drug in a country outside of the U.S.? And if so, when? Yeah. So again, I think it's kind of tough to answer in the abstract. I think it is product by product. I would say it's probably the most straightforward of a recommendation in a situation where you have a specific you know, safety or efficacy issue from FDA, articulated by FDA, and you've got another regulator somewhere else that's taking a, a slightly different position that makes at least initial development more straightforward or expedient or less expensive. And so that's kind of what I typically, you know, most often encounter. It's not necessarily let's abandon development in the U.S. It's more okay, we can get in the clinic, we can do some initial studies, and then we can come back to FDA with some initial data that, uh, some initial clinical data that answers some of their questions. So that's the most often where I've seen this kind of play out and how I've kind of seen it play out. But other than that, you know, it's a mix of a lot of different things, right? It's development, time, and expense that we've talked about. It's the pricing and reimbursement picture the market size and the ability to access that market, patent and other exclusivities, those may those may differ significantly across jurisdictions. And then, you know, thinking through the benefit of some of the expedited pathway in the UK or, you know, some of the marketing exclusivity in, incentives in, in China and other jurisdictions. 
So it's really kind of thinking through all of those things and then just making a determination where do we think we're best off starting or focusing on and, and always knowing that we can kind of leverage that, you know, do a little bit here and then go there and kind of leverage what we've done to kind of move things forward as expeditiously as possible. We're going to talk about expenses and pricing in a second, but in what you had said before, I think you had mentioned expenses a little bit. And I'm curious, are by working with an attorney like yourself, for example, earlier and more proactively in the process, have you foreseen that it does help to lessen a company's expenses during the regulatory process? It's a good question. I would say, I think it can. And here's why I think, you know, often what we find is that we'll kind of get involved fairly late in the process. And the first thing that we always ask for is give us all of your prior correspondence. And often what companies will start by saying to us is, you know, we had no idea this issue was, was coming. It wasn't until the very end. It wasn't until the end of phase three. And, and now FDA is asking for a second study or a different study. Or we've submitted our application and FDA is refusing to file it. Or we're even all the way through, you know, very close to the end of the review process for the application. And now FDA is raising this issue. So we'll say, okay, we're happy to help. Give us all of your correspondence going back sometimes five years, 10 years, back to where the first conversations with the agency began. And we'll see that issue. And from our experience, we'll say, we would have looked that at that hindsight's always 2020 right but a lot of times we think that you know we if we had seen that then we would have flagged that for you because we've seen that play out in this way this is what fda means when they say this in that way and so i think just getting that benefit of having somebody else with a lot of experience kind of and seeing how these things play out look at some of that stuff early you can identify some of those issues and at least start to work towards resolution on them. And that can save you on the back end, you know, maybe having a very expensive dispute or maybe even having to repeat, you know, worst case scenario is repeat a very large phase three clinical study. So that's kind of how I look at that question. And I, I think that, you know, we and others can, can help with that. Awesome. You're mentioning if you had come in sooner with your experience, you know, you guys would have seen this, therefore you would have flagged that. This is going to be off topic. So I'm simply curious. It sounds like, I mean, as is the case in any industry, it sounds like experience is super, super important for an attorney working in the life sciences space, especially the regulatory space. In case there's folks on the podcast, you know, who want to be an attorney in the life sciences space how on earth do you get that experience and get involved here? Is it about being like a paralegal and watching these things and gleaning that information and then eventually moving up? I'm curious. It's a great question. You know, I get asked all the time and I think partly because I have a science background. So I have a degree in microbiology and experience in, in research and working in pharma and a lot of other attorneys do. Some of them have a master's in public health. And I get asked that question, is that a requisite? And the answer is absolutely not. I mean, really the only requisite is that you have interest in the issues and interest in some of the legal concepts and, and issues that, that come up. And so really anybody can, can do that. And just in terms of how you do it, I think there's lots of different routes. There's lots of different paths. You know, one thing that 
I was not really ever aware of, and I wish I had, is the options of working at FDA. You know, you can, you, and there's lots of different positions that you can get at the college level or, you know, even, you know, beyond, like during law school, there are opportunities to work with FDA. There's opportunities to work at FDA right after law school. So that, and then related agencies, you know, HHS, which is kind of the, the parent organization of, of FDA. There are other related agencies like CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. So, you know, those are options, you know, looking at law firms that have FDA regulatory and life sciences practices as potential options, you know, but people come, you know, to this practice from all different areas. You know, we have folks who started as general litigators in, in their legal career, but gravitated more towards life science and eventually to FDA regulatory. So. Short answer is there's lots of paths <laughs> and the science background is absolutely not necessary. So just, you know, look for what interests you and explore that and, and see where it takes you. Thank you for once again, allowing me, you know, the pleasure of this rabbit trail, but to get back to expenses, let's talk about drug pricing. Drug pricing is obviously a huge topic within the industry. What considerations should companies be aware of, particularly from a legal perspective? As primarily an FDA regulatory lawyer, but, you know, I think we've had to deal with the reality of the pricing and reimbursement pressure in the U.S. increasingly more and more. I think there's kind of two things that I'm most interested in at, at the moment. One is the fairly recent erosion of the idea that FDA approval is necessarily going to get you reimbursement in the U.S., we saw CMS just last year for the first time ever make the decision that even though a drug had uh, in Alzheimer's space had approval from FDA, they were not going to pay for it. So that is so far, it's a one time thing, but that was completely unprecedented. And we're very much watching to see if that's a trend that continues. And if so, whether there's a challenge to that, what the challenge might might look like. At a minimum, it, it certainly represents, you know, a, an undercutting and a little bit of an erosion of kind of the supremacy, if you will, of FDA's approval and what that means in the U.S. system. So very much interested to see how that plays out. And then the second thing is really just kind of the astonishment at how complex, you know, the pricing and reimbursement landscape is. It's even just within the U.S. or any other jurisdiction, it's extremely complex. And then when you try to kind of think it through kind of across the globe, it's it's incredibly complex, right? So you really have to think about it from a product by product basis in the US, in the EU, and even within the EU on a member state by member state basis. And then, you know, complex factors in, in China and, and elsewhere. So it really is just a very complicated picture. It's constantly changing. There are, you know, constantly new challenges, like, you know, like the example in the US. And so that's one of the things that I'm really focused on. So the answer to most of these questions is it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Okay. So that is the last of my official questions. Next, I'd like to move to the leadership tip portion of the show. And so my question for you is, what is one leadership tip that you'd like to share? This could be for a fellow colleagues or the younger version of yourself or for folks who are up and coming and not sure how to you know, get into the life sciences space, what is one tip you'd like to share? 
Well, this is definitely something that I wish someone had told me or that I had learned much, much earlier in my career and life, which is how important it is to accept and let go of your mistakes and the mistakes of others. You know, I think people often talk about admitting your mistakes and moving on from them, but I think there's still a tendency to kind of hold on to the regret that you have for making a mistake, you know, the guilt that you may feel and to kind of focus on, well, it's only because, you know, so-and-so did this or the circumstance was like that. And that really kind of, I think, helps like prevents you from, you know, moving forward in that relationship with that other person, right? And at the end of the day, it's really those relationships that you have with folks and your network. And, you know, the more people that you have kind of in your corner fighting for you, the better off you are. So really just letting go of whatever somebody might have done, you know, they might have had a bad day, you know, I try to remind myself that everybody is the hero in their own story, right? So just be gracious with yourself, but more importantly, be gracious with other people as I've learned to do that, you know, I've had a lot more success in my relationship. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your time and insight today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube at pharmaceutical executive magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com slash advertise. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.